0: One of the tasks defined in the Yad Vashem Law, passed by the Israeli parliament in 1953, was to commemorate the actions of the righteous among the nations. In a world that had lost its moral values, at a time when the attitude of the majority towards Jews was tainted by indifference or hostility, there was also a small minority of people who mustered extraordinary courage to uphold their moral values. Non Jewish people who saved Jews in life threatening situations and without receiving any compensation. People who were willing to leave their place among the bystanders and in many ways shared the same fate as the victims. Welcome to On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. I'm your host, Nate Nelson. Andre Ghislaine was a 20-year-old teacher at a school in Brussels. One day, one of her students showed up at school wearing a yellow badge on his clothes. Up to this point, Ghislaine had not taken significant notice of the persecution of Jews. It was probably the first time that she had to confront discrimination so clearly and up close. Ghislaine could have ignored, expressed grief, empathy, or even her displeasure with that rule but she chose to take active action and ordered all her students to wear a sort of apron over their garments that would hide the degrading patch. That way, it would not be possible to know which of the students was marked. Ghislaine could have stopped there. She had certainly brought about significant change in the feeling of her Jewish students, but instead, she took it one step further. Ghislaine joined an underground rescue network and started helping and saving lives by escorting Jewish children to hiding places. To do this, she had to leave her parents home and move to a boarding school where she continued working as a teacher. In May 1943, the Germans raided the boarding school in the middle of the night. They had probably been tipped off. The students were woken up and forcibly dragged from their beds, their identities checked. The Jewish students were arrested and Gilen was interrogated. The school principal and her husband were sent to a concentration camp where they later died. Ghislaine stood again at a crossroads. The raid had made the danger of continuing her illegal activities painfully clear, but she chose to continue. For more than two years, Ghislaine took in children and sent them into hiding with Christian families and monasteries. She made sure that those families were able to take in the children, both physically and mentally, and continued to visit them and take care of their needs. But she did even more. Every time she went on a mission, she would memorize their real and assumed names and their new addresses and would later prepare secret lists with this information. The hope was that these hundreds of children might be able to be reunited with their families after the war. After the liberation, Gilen did in fact work to return the children to their surviving family members. On February 2nd, 1989, Yad Vashem recognized Andre Gilen Hershkovitsky as a Righteous Among the Nations. Her story is indeed a ray of light, but it's a ray of light in a very dark period. Out of a population of 400 million people living under Nazi occupation, only over 27,000 have been recognized as Righteous Among the Nations. The prevailing atmosphere was of hostility towards the Jews and anyone who tried to help them. To provide that help, simply put, was a very difficult decision that puts you directly at risk in so many ways. Dr. Joel Zissenwine, historian and director of the Department of Righteous Among the Nations at Yad Vashem.
1: Quite often, the decision to let a Jew or a Jewish family or several Jews into, into your house, this was often done in a haste of a moment. Sometimes somebody would literally knock on your door and a decision had to be made, on the spot, will you provide aid to these people or not? And once they were let in, there were various uh, difficulties. First of all, just on the, I would say, ordinary daily uh, level, um, you had to provide them with food. Now, we're talking about Europe under occupation during World War II. There was a shortage of food all across Europe, and uh, people could usually uh, obtain food or purchase purchase food, um, uh, mainly by ration cards. Uh, These cards were rationed according to the number of uh, people registered in a a, uh, family or in a house. So you suddenly had a situation where you had people that are not registered, and you can't report them, and you have to uh, acquire food somehow. So this was often done, I guess, through the black market. Um, This, of course, uh, was one challenge. Another problem I would say even more complex and more uh, risky than uh, than finding food was the uh, need to uh, keep this as a secret. The general public or the neighbors could potentially um, report to the authorities that you suspect that your neighbor is um, hiding Jews or assisting Jews. This could be done sometimes out of anti-Semitic motivation and sometimes just out of um, opportunity, out of opportunism. To maybe perhaps if you reported your neighbor that's hiding Jews, you could receive an award, a prize, uh, money, more food. So these were things
0: that uh, posed the risk. It's important to point out that Guilen was active in Belgium. The act of saving Jews in Western European countries, Belgium, France, or the Netherlands, for example, was very different than in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, such as Poland, Lithuania, or Soviet territories, where the German occupation was more violent and the danger involved in assisting or rescuing Jews far greater.
1: In certain regions of Europe, particularly I would say in the Eastern European regions, occupied Poland and uh, certain regions of the occupied USSR the Nazi authorities uh, explicitly announced to the general public that rescuing Jews would result in the death penalty, not only to the uh, rescuer himself or herself, but also to the entire family. In other words, attempting to rescue Jews could result in uh, death penalty or execution, not only of, the, of one individual, but of his entire family, his children, maybe his parents or his siblings. So that's one thing you have to understand.
0: In Western Europe, the German authorities were less explicit about the consequences of harboring Jews, though the threat was real enough. We know today that in many cases, rescuers weren't executed, but this wasn't widely known at the time. And in many cases, in countries like France or the Netherlands, those harboring Jews were sent to concentration camps. In such a risky environment, different people reacted in different kinds of ways. There were those like André Guillén who went above and beyond to help complete strangers. Others tried to help where they could, but were afraid to go too far. Many stood aside entirely or did far worse.
1: The spectrum of responses to uh, persecution of Jews ranges between or from what I would say you could talk about some kind of polarizing or polarizing attitudes. On the one hand, you have the extremely small minority of rescuers um, who, I guess you could say, uh, sympathized with the faith of the Jews and were willing to risk themselves and their uh, possibly, possibly their loved ones. And then on the other extreme end, you have the perpetrators. And in the middle, I think you could talk about various ranges or um, categories of um, attitudes towards Jews. You have indifference. You have to remember this is, uh, we're talking about World War II. Um, Though the general non-Jewish population of Europe is not necessarily suffering like the Jews, many of them are subjected to various degrees of of brutal treatment by the Nazi authorities and by their collaborators. So that I would say they're first and foremost uh, looking after themselves and their families. They may not necessarily have the time or, I would say, emotional ability to look out for what, what's happening to Jews. So that, that's, one, That's I would say, in the middle. And then you have various degrees of hostility towards Jews. I mentioned before uh, the existence of, uh, sort of traditional anti-Semitic uh, sentiments. So this could result in will to report Jews to the uh, authorities. Um, it could be a cases where someone would literally just slam the door on Jews looking for aid. And then we have degrees of active collaboration with um, the Nazi authorities. Uh, this sometimes resulted in active participation in roundups and even in active participation in mass shootings.
0: One pointed example here is the story of Malka Rosenthal. Malka, formerly known as Marisha Dahlberg, was born in 1934 in the city of Stanislawov, then Poland. Her little brother was murdered in the ghetto, and she and her mother were smuggled by a Polish nanny, Denisa, who worked for them before the war started, into hiding in the home of a Polish acquaintance in town. After someone reported them, they both had to leave his home and travel by train to a small village named Utin, hoping there that they could be reunited with their father, who had escaped earlier to find a safe haven.
2: My mother told me that someone had recognized her, and the professor told us we had to leave. She explained that we'd travel by train to Utinia, to one of the villages. She said we didn't have a choice. It was forbidden... So we'd pretend that we were Polish and we would leave. It was nerve-wracking. We were under terrible pressure. We sat there, we tried not to stand out. We sat without speaking. I pretended to sleep on her lap and she stroked me. We sat there on the train, very, very quiet on the outside, but very, very frightened on the inside. Then we passed by Stanislavov. My mother and I breathed a sigh of relief. A few moments later, someone got up and shouted, a Jewess and her bastard Jew child, Violence broke out in the compartment of the train. They beat us, pulled our hair, pulled out my mother's hair. Someone kicked me in the back. They really beat us up. I'd call it a brutal beating. They yelled, stop the train, stop the train, hand them over to the Gestapo. Suddenly, a Ukrainian man stood up. He was tall and dark, and he said, wait, wait, don't stop the train. If you stop it, we'll all have to pay a big fine. The Germans don't like to play around. I live in Uhurniki. There is a train station there. I'll take her and hand her over to the Gestapo there. He asked, does anyone want to join me? No one. There were no volunteers. The train reached the station and he took us off very violently. He gave me a fierce slap. I don't think that anyone has ever hit me so fiercely. He beat my mother and yelled and cursed us and took us off the train. He held us like this, here, by the coat. He held on to us tightly and let us out ahead of him. Suddenly, when the train had disappeared from view, he said... Mrs. Stuhlberg, are you crazy? How can you travel here? Everyone recognizes you. What are you doing?
0: One of the questions that arises from this situation Malka described in her testimony is how the choice of passengers on that train car can be explained. First of all, the choice to reveal the identity of Malka and her mother as Jews. They could ignore it. Even if that passenger feared that if the Germans discovered the Jewish passengers were on the train, it would have had consequences for all passengers in the car, they could have asked them to just get off at the nearest station in a different and more discreet way. But instead, it was done brutally, a course of action that was also adopted by other passengers who beat an innocent woman and a six-year-old girl. Of course, this evokes thoughts about the reality of that period and the variety of external and internal factors that turned that train into a kind of pressure cooker that just exploded. In all of this, there is one person who came to their aid. In order not to arouse even the slightest suspicion, he had to make sure that he was doing it in the right way. In light of this new reality, the Jews were asking for help in some situations by letter at a meeting. Many times it was a knock on the door that changed the fate of rescuers and survivors alike. If the door opened, it saved the Jews for at least some time, redeemed them from their loneliness. At the same time, the rescuers crossed the line and joined the side of the persecuted, living in constant fear, often underground and under constant threat. Jan and Anna Pawalski, parents of five children who lived in severe poverty, hid five Jews in the basement of their home. One of them was a man named Felix Zandman. He said about his saviors, quote, "...they did an extraordinary deed. When you talk about heroism, you talk about heroes on the battlefield. Someone is injured, you come to his aid, and in two to three minutes you get him out of the line of fire. It's a really big deal. And you get a medal for that. Big hero. Right." And here they are not only risking their own life, but also the lives of their children. And it is not something that ended within five minutes. It lasted 17 months, 24 hours a day. It was terrible, and they did it. End quote. It's important to emphasize that the decision to save Jews was not a one-time decision. The choice to continue to save those Jews was made every day. Every new risk they faced put rescuers again and again at the crossroads of choice, whether to continue to rescue or say, that's it, I've done my part, I can't continue, economically, physically, mentally.
1: When you provided, uh, or the Righteous Among the Nations provided shelter to Jews, they didn't have a set timetable or a schedule how long this was going to last. Just to give an example, if someone provided shelter in Poland in 1942, let's say a Polish peasant or Polish priest or whatever, doesn't necessarily know when the war is going to end. So the timetable is unknown. And as we mentioned before, the risk is great. And uh, this, I would say, creates, and this could be said for any place in Europe, whether the Netherlands, Belgium, Poland, the Ukraine, this would create what i could what you could call a pressure cooker you have in many cases um people that you have absolutely no um prior um familiarity with or you don't know them from before and now you have to you're suddenly i would say um i wouldn't say stuck together but you suddenly have have these people living in your house for an for an indefinite uh period of time and you have to both provide for them and also um, keep this as a secret.
0: We heard earlier the beginning of the testimony of Malka Rosenthal, who was smuggled by her caregiver to the house of a Polish professor in Stanislavov. She was rescued from a hostile caravan by another passenger who brought them to his house and then accompanied them to the crook family's house where the father hid. One day, the Germans conducted a search, and Malka's mother had to sacrifice her life so that Malka and her father could escape to the depths of the nearby forest. After days of escaping in the rain, the snow, without food, tremendous fear, the feeling of helplessness, of despair, they got to the person who was considered the head of the Hosno village. His name was Wojciechowski, and he hid them in his home and gave them food and a place to sleep and peace of mind for a few days.
2: I don't know how long I slept, but when I woke up, father was gone. I was all alone in this village with strangers. The woman took my hand, Mrs. Wojciechowski, and took me across the street, where there was a house. She knocked on the door, and a woman opened it. Three girls were standing beside her. In her hand, she held the baby, Wojia.
0: Malka was hidden by the Kot family and their four daughters in their home. After about two months, there was an incident in the village.
2: And then, one day, I heard a child screaming. What an awful scream. Have mercy on me. Mercy. Leave me alone. It was horrible. Horrendous cries. It turned out that a Jewish boy was hiding with some neighbors. The neighbor's son found out and brought his friends over. It was a Sunday, and they were a little drunk. He brought his friends. They used pitchforks to search in the straw and killed the boy with a pitchfork.
0: The Kot family found itself once again at a crossroads of choice. The relatively calm atmosphere in the village was interrupted. The Germans might have heard about the incident and come looking for Jews hiding in other places. That Polish boy and his friends could have continued their hunt. They have four daughters, one of whom is a baby girl. So do they continue to risk themselves? Do they continue to risk their daughters for Malka's saving attempt? They did continue. They hid Malka in a pit they dug under the manger of a cow in a barrel. Once a day, Anja, their daughter, brought her food, took her out of the barrel, ate with her, and talked with her to try to keep her peace of mind. Malka hid with the Kot family for a year and a half, of which she hid in the same barrel for 10 months. Malka survived the Holocaust and later immigrated to Israel. We can count no less than six people and families that were required to save one Jewish girl In the 1953 law that establishes Yad Vashem one of its stated missions is to commemorate the righteous among nations who quote risk their lives to save Jews end quote one possible reason why this need to recognize rescuers arose so early this is only 8 years after the end of the war and only 5 after the founding of the state of Israel is that this kind of recognition was already taking place during the Holocaust.
1: Anthony Schmidt was one of the uh, first rescuers to be uh, recognized as a righteous among the nation. He was a sergeant in the uh, German military. He was posted in Vilna, Lithuania in 1941. He was in somewhat of an office job, I guess, office position. And he was stationed uh, nearby the uh, local rail station. He... Witnessed or started to hear about the various cases of the mass killings and uh, of Jews in the uh, vicinity of Vilna And in general mistreatment and persecution of Jews and he started providing uh, the Jewish uh, laborers that were um, Stationed at the railway station. He's treated them in a nice way and word sort of spread that there's this sergeant in the uh, military who's treating the Jews nicely At some point he started uh providing them with work permits work permits were often were distinguished between remain staying alive and being sent to uh ponar that's the local murder site in vilna at some point he also uh, since he had uh, various uh vehicles at uh, at his disposal he started using them in order to smuggle out jews from vilna to regions that were considered less dangerous or less risky at that uh point we have a story that's was uh, reported uh, during the uh, war itself, during the Holocaust itself, uh, of a case in which on the on New Year's Eve 1942, he participated in a gathering along with uh, um, members of the Zionist underground in Vilna. And we hear a very touching story in which they, some of them spoke about the future, where they hoped that one day, once a Jewish state would be established, Schmidt would be invited, and they even talked about reward, uh, awarding him a uh, some sort of medal. Some see this as the possible roots or beginning of thinking about how the Jews would pay tribute to these few righteous among the nations after the war.
0: We are talking about a unique and unprecedented thing. A people suffers greatly from such horrible crimes, survives, and just a short time thereafter actively tries to locate those few who had tried to save them, even from those countries that had initiated these very atrocities. For several years after the 1953 law, nothing formal had been done to this end, mainly because Yad Vashem had been focusing on research and archival work. But then Yad Vashem started to receive a lot of letters from survivors, even more so after the news of the capture of Adolf Eichmann in 1960. The statement of the survivors was, We don't only want to prosecute those who murdered us, we also want to acknowledge with gratitude those who saved us. One of the letters was sent by Rachel Auerbach, a member of the Oneg Shabbat Archive in the Warsaw Ghetto, which we've covered in an earlier episode. She wrote to the management of Yad Vashem asking to honor the Righteous Among the Nations by planting a forest in their name. The Avenue of the Righteous Among the Nations was scheduled to be inaugurated on the National Holocaust Remembrance Day in May 1962. The plan was to hold a ceremony in which the first 12 trees would be planted on the avenue in honor of the rescuers who were known at that time. Among them was Oskar Schindler, the German industrialist who saved more than a thousand Jews from Krakow and its surroundings by employing them under more humane conditions and preventing their deportation to extermination camps. A few days before the planned ceremony, however, Julius Wiener, a Holocaust survivor from Krakow, threatened that if Schindler be recognized and were to attend the ceremony, he would make a scene and uproot the newly planted tree. According to him, Schindler was not a righteous among the nations at all, but a, quote, Nazi who had turned his skin, end quote, in order to save himself and turn the tide of war. According to Weiner and another Holocaust survivor, Schindler was an opportunist, a member of the Nazi party who came to Poland to make money and brutally confiscated the factory that belonged to their families. The trees were planted on the avenue a few days later with no official representation from the state, including the tree in Schindler's honor. However, following the incident, the then chairman of the Yad board, Dr. Arya Kubovi, decided to establish an independent committee headed by a Supreme Court judge the committee formulated the full definition of who is eligible for the title of Righteous Among the Nations. Schindler, incidentally, did not receive full recognition that year. When he died at his home in 1974, the person who chaired the committee was Judge Moshe Baiske, who was himself one of Schindler's survivors, and therefore did not feel that it would be appropriate to reopen the case under his own tenure. In 1993, 85 year old Emily Schindler arrived in Israel to shoot the final scene of the film Schindler's List. The Committee of the Righteous Among the Nations decided to take advantage of the event and award Ms. Schindler the title of Righteous Among the Nations for her good deed towards the Jews. Dr. Mordechai Paldiel, who was then at the head of the Department of the Righteous Among the Nations at Yad Vashem and was a member of the committee, said that the decision had created a paradoxical situation because Miss Schindler was declared righteous among the nations, while her husband remained without full recognition. The hearings and the committee discussions regarding Schindler's case were renewed, and it was decided to grant him the full title without objection. Perhaps it took so long because in 1962, there was less room for edge cases. The fact that Schindler was a member of the Nazi party, wore the swastika on his chest, and confiscated Jewish property prevented him from getting recognized as a Righteous Among the Nations at the time, despite the change he went through and the fact that he went above and beyond at great risk in order to save Jews. Even today, you can find many even more complex cases in which the individual in question will be debated several times over before a final decision on the subject is made.
1: Well, the known case is the case of the uh, Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky from Lviv in Ukraine. This is a supreme leader of the uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church, who, on the one hand, we know served as a spiritual leader of the Ukrainian nationalist movement and its uh, struggle against the Soviet Union. And we know that he uh, gre- uh, he greeted or welcomed the invading, German invading forces in June 1941 while they entered the city of Lvov. And it should be said that members of the uh, Ukrainian nationalist movement uh, played an active role, at least some of them, in roundups of Jews and active participation in mass murder. On the other hand, Shapitzy provided shelter and aid to several of his Jewish acquaintances uh, during this period. So we had this is a situation where the committee has to uh, weigh had to weigh on the one hand. Uh, testimonies about aid that Chepttitsky provided to them on the other hand we have a religious leader who is linked to the nationalist movement that some of its members played an active role in the persecution of Jews we also know that at a certain point Chetitsky issued several pastoral letters in which he preached against the uh, persecution of uh, the innocent though so he didn't necessarily explicitly it didn't necessarily uh, refer uh, to Jews, it is assumed that people who read those letters uh, knew to whom he was referring. So this is the case where the, this case was brought to the uh, committee several times. The committee weighed both I would say, both ends and decided ultimately not to recognize Sheptinsky as a righteous among the nations.
0: We'll end with the story of Olena Riorishina, a simple woman from the Kosov region of Ukraine who rescued a 12-year-old girl named Donia Rosen. Donia recounted it later in a book, writing, quote, Olena Riorishna was a 65-year-old woman tired of life, kneeling under the yoke of distress. She was by herself and with no one else nearby without anyone close, without a place of her own. Her only assets were her physical strength and a good heart. She worked hard for a piece of bread. People took advantage of her, mocked her, called her a fool, a miserable one. Olena went from place to place, from house to house, where she worked, where she slept, and more than once she had to spend the night in the open air. Donia's mother died when she was two years old, and she was taken in by her grandparents, who owned a local inn. Her grandfather knew all the residents of the town, but it was Olena the same woman who lived on the fringes of society, who took pity on her and took her to her home. Not the richer folks from the higher social classes. Donia wondered whether it was that loneliness that moved Olena to take her under her wing. Donia Rosen survived, immigrated to Israel, and later became the director of the Righteous Among the Nations department at Yad Vashem. She did not start a family and dedicated her story Friends of the Forest to her guardian. Quote, this book is dedicated to Olena and all the anonymous people who risk their lives to save the children of Israel. Dear unforgettable Olena, if I were a sculptor I would create your monument, I would commemorate your noble figure, a motherly figure who is willing to endure the cruelest torments for her children and who is willing to sacrifice her life at any time. End quote. Finally, Donia writes, quote, I want you to commemorate us a monument that will reach to heaven, a sign that the whole world will see, a sculpture not of marble or stone, but of good deeds. End quote. The Righteous Among the Nations are a very, very diverse group of people of all ages and from all countries in Europe. From cities, villages, from all professions, there's a zoo director, a circus director, a sewer system maintenance man, an undertaker, teachers, nuns, diplomats, and security people. All walks of life, Muslims, Christians, atheists. They come from all over the political spectrum. What they have in common is that at a certain moment, they saw Jews in trouble, and decided to act. And they teach us that everyone has a choice. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about the righteous among the nations, visit yadvashem.org. This has been On the Holocaust from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. This program was produced by Itamar Swissa, Danny Timor, Ron Levy, and myself, Nate Nelson. Research and content management by Jonathan Clapsaddle and Daphna Delinko. The story you heard was written by Irit Dagan. Thanks for listening. Hit subscribe for more stories like this.